I went over to him. He's probably in his seventies, I'd imagine, from South Bristol. Yeah. And I went up to him and said, "Good evening. I'm your Lord Mayor of Bristol." And he had a massive go at me. He right. said, "You're the one." I'm Neil Maggs, and this is Bristol Unpacked, speaking to fascinating Bristolians on topics where others may fear to tread. Brought to you by the city's community-owned media, The Bristol Cable. Cleo Lake is a Green Party councillor and former Lord Mayor. She's our guest this week and she's also a founding member of the Countering Colston movement which was set up to remove the statue in the city. Hi Cleo, how are you doing? Yeah, I'm doing good. Good to see you. I like the lion in the background. What does that signify? That signifies the toppling of Colston because that is the painting that replaced his portrait in the Lord Mayor's parlour. Ah, wonderful. We'll get on to that. What, what I want to ask you first is, obviously the eyes of the world have been on Bristol, you know, international news across the globe, statues coming down left, right and centre. The, the obvious question for me to ask you, what did you think of the statue coming down and, and the manner in which it came down? Well, my immediate reaction was that I stood up, cheered and was just elated. I was actually partway through a live online streamed protest. There's some of us who didn't go to the physical Black Lives Matter protest, so we wanted to create something for people who were at home. And luckily we had our roving reporter for the day actually show us the scenes as they happened, and my immediate reaction was joy. I was actually watching it from home. I was watching you guys, yeah. And um, suddenly I just went, oh my god, what's going on? I just shouted to to my partner, Luanda, quick, quick, quick! I was straight onto Twitter. It was pretty mad, you know, not not just the pulling down. Then I was like, they're rolling it. They're rolling it towards the river. You say you felt joy because you've been, you know, you've been involved in this campaign. Uh, for those that don't know, you were involved in Countering Colston. Countering Colston is a campaign group that formed roughly around 2015 that was set up to dismantle the public celebration of Edward Colston. Did you have any kind of inkling that this was going to happen or was it a complete surprise? You know what, in the week leading up to that, I had received a couple of comments and messages on social media from the backdrop of the Black Lives Matter global movement, people kind of questioning and saying, can we put the notion of getting rid of the statue back on the table? I know Counter and Colston were also getting messages. So we actually had a meeting and discussed it as a campaign group, but not on our radar that it could have been taken out like that just a few days later, not on our radar at all. A number of people that don't like what's happened are saying it was just mindless violence. A, there was no violence on the day, and B, the very fact that the statue was pushed by Perils Bridge, to me, that was it was a mindful act, that people that knew their history, wasn't it? I think overall, we wouldn't have seen the knock-on effects that we're seeing now, cathedral removing their stained glass window, the wording coming off of Colston Hall, the Colston Tower no longer illuminated, none of that would have happened if, if it hadn't have been taken out the way it was. We've been part of a campaign asking for the statue to be removed for years. That wasn't listened to. 
Country Colton is an official, you know, campaign group. But as you know, both of us growing up in the city, these conversations have taken place in the community for a long, long, long time. Why did it take so long? I think it's the reality of the power systems in the city, people in leadership and their nervousness. And we've seen the evidence come out to support that with the merchant venturers now publicly saying how they think it's the right thing that the statue has gone and how they regret interfering with the wording on the plaque. They've come out and said that. So that can allude to the facts or quite blatantly highlight how much of a say they've had in what happens and what doesn't happen in our city. For anybody who is listening outside the city, you don't kind of know who the merchant venturers are. Well, today they are really a group of business people in the city who have individually and collectively a lot of economic power and economic wealth. The merchant venturers' history dates back hundreds of years and was an organisation heavily involved in enslavement and Edward Colston was a member. So we have had a Labour mayor for four years, a mayor more of a recent moment. We've had an independent mayor, George Ferguson. He We've had He was a former merchant venturer. Yeah. We've also had roughly around 30 years of a predominantly Labour city council. So there's been a number of different people in those positions of power. Yeah. It, are, is this is the suggestion then that elected power doesn't control some elements of the city, Partic- in, in particular in reference to this Colson statue? Is is the insinuation then that elected power doesn't have the authority to enact this? Yeah. So on on the face of it, there is the ability to make those decisions, but the reality of it is there's obviously things going on in the background that are not transparent and that even people like me as city councillor are not party to. How much influence is the city office having and what are they exactly doing? And that, that's an interesting point because when a lot of people talk about the merchant adventures, they are talking about the past. When anybody that's embedded in politics in the city knows that it's very much in the present. I mean, I'm also interested in the fact that I don't want to have a conversation with Marvin about this and he's not here to answer this in, in fairness, but I, I very much doubt any black people really in the city would be happy with the statue of Colston. If a black mayor is unable to act on this, what does that say about the, the influence and control of others outside of that elected system? I can only speak about what I would do. I can only reflect on some of the things I've said in private conversations when I've had to be around certain tables in certain scenarios when I was Lord Mayor. And for me, I will always challenge in as a respectful manner as I can, but I'll always say what I want to say. Shortly, I will hope to release some of the speeches I gave as Lord Mayor, where people can clearly see I wasn't shying away from what I felt needed to be said. You are probably the only official in the city that has made a a metaphoric gesture with regards to Colston. When you became Lord Mayor, very quickly you removed the statue of Edward Colston from your office, didn't you? How long were you in were you in the position before you did that? I think it was less than a month, and the delay was getting the right people from the museum service to remove it in the right way, so that it could be, you know preserved and all the rest of it. So if you were a city mayor, what would you have done? I would have made an apology 
to the descendants of enslaved people on behalf of the city and I would have set about removing the statue. How quickly do you think you could have done it? Given the fact that it took a month to get rid of a portrait, it would have probably have taken, I don't know, several months, I would imagine. Yeah. With will and determination and collective power, it can be as quick as you want it to be. But with the bureaucracy of the system, it's unlikely to happen overnight. Do you see the statues as being um, symbolic, really, of a, of a wider issue in the city? And obviously a wider issue globally, really. What's the word? The physical embodiment of a, of a, of a mindset and a mentality in a system. Yeah, well, I would look at and follow movements that have existed for decades before this current wave, particularly thinking of colleagues over there in America, particularly New Orleans, and the Take Em Down NOLA movement that you can track for at least 30 years, and how the toppling of these monuments to oppression, genocide, ecocide, that is the first pillar that needs to fall. It opens the debate, it gets things out in the open, it brings more people into the conversation, regardless of what side of the fence they might be on. So I think it's really important. I think how we frame our civic spaces is a reference to our values. If you look at a lot of community organisations in Bristol that are set up to to support and kind of challenge racial inequality, give opportunities to people from inner city communities. A lot of them are funded by the merchant ventures through slush funds like the Quartet. Do you see that as, as being a, um, a kind of odd double standard? The merchant venturers, and obviously I learned more about this in my role as Lord Mayor, without these institutions, the city would be in a worse situation than it is now particularly if we think about adult social care, the merchant venturers today, although they may be nameless and faceless to an extent, you cannot deny that they do contribute a lot to this city. When austerity is as it is, they do fill some of the gaps that the city council cannot meet. And that's the counter argument to this, isn't it? Is that we are in a situation where the, the, um, you know, there's been significant amount of cuts from national government to local council. We're in a space where lots of traditional local authority delivered services in the city from from youth work to to, to sport to, you know, to social care to lots that are now have been put out to tender to the third sector. A lot of those organisations will have a merchant venture on their board or a lot of them will have received some funding in some way or another. So um, are, are we in a situation where it's the better the devil, you know, um, where, it, you know, you're better to have a relationship with them in some in some capacity when i interviewed um uh the uh, the ceo of the st paul's carnival um she said to me that it's our money i think some things that are, are worth noting of course being such a historic organization they've also been on their journey of transformation you know one stop along the way is kind of the dying out literally of the peerage system yeah, you know, yeah. So the merchant venturers, many of the members would have inherited their space on that organisation, whereas today it's more about the business you run in the city and the work you do in communities that will get you a spot on that board. So that's an element of transformation. Equally, 
allowing or having more women to enter the society. And we've, of course, also seen Marty Burgess, the first person of African heritage, join. I wanted to ask you what your feelings were, you know, as a black woman, uh, seeing the Merchant Ventures having their first black person. A couple of questions on that. One, what, what do you think about that? And two, if you were asked, would you join? I've got a few different feelings about that. I can say that Marty Burgess was also on the board of Bristol Music Trust and, and was kind of in dialogue with Countering Colston. So the fact that I was a city councillor, I wasn't just an activist on the sidelines, a city councillor, which meant to an extent I had to be listened to a bit more. Marty Burgess on the board of Bristol Music Trust, Joe Birch Brown inside of Bristol University, all of these things led to Colston Hall, for example, agreeing to change their name. So there can be a place for people in institutions to bring about change. I think it's important to have all different strategies. You had people in different areas who were inside and then people who were outside. And there, there has been some people, you referred to the Merchant Ventures um, official statement, which went out onto Twitter a few, a few days ago. There were people commenting saying, the, the influence that they felt that Marty would have herself as an individual black person being in the Merchant Ventures could have, because it's a complete 180 on what they said a week before. Well, I don't know about that. You know, there's many things we could speculate on. We, it's yeah. very hard to predict. Some people have been unhappy with how the statue went down, saying it was, saying the movement was co-opted by kind of white, sort of left-wing, yeah. whatever. Yeah. Um, And that, you know, in an ideal world, now that momentum is building in terms of awareness of the plight of people of African heritage under the banners of Black Lives Matter, maybe as a community we'd be in a better position to ask for the statue to be removed. There's issues with that because from my experience, I don't believe that another ask would have been sufficient. For sure. And, And there's been a bit of kickback to the mayor for the very reason that it hasn't happened over four years. Do you think that's fair? Because David Oligosi, the historian, tweeted and said that once again, people are blaming the black guy, not the white institutions that have held power for 400 years. Is that, is that a fair point? I think an element of that is fair. And it isn't just for us to stick our necks out. It's got to be more than that. Of course, people would expect us to champion certain issues and perhaps us being in a position does provoke the ability to catalyse change. Yeah. But it's never one person's responsibility. And they don't have the backstory with things that may have been said or may have been done behind the scenes. I think another aspect that is quite interesting is what would have happened if it had been people of African heritage who tore the statue down? How would that have played out on the day? couple years back when Colston girls actually confirmed that they would drop the symbols of Colston at their commemoration. And you went to you went to Colston school didn't you? We need to say yeah yeah yeah. They acted and said that they would no longer reference him in their commemoration service and they would get rid of for example the bronze chrysanthemum that is his favourite flower allegedly that we would all have to wear on our lapel every first Friday of November. 
Yeah. That started to topple and they acted on the activism by countering Colston, but then backed up by their own students, which made right. it impossible for them to ignore. And at that time, I reflected and I wrote a poem. And one of the lines is along the lines of, I would sooner see young white Bristolians take the statue down, because if that happened, then I would know that we've actually moved on as a city. I think I think that's a really, really crucial point because we need to look at this as generational as well, is yeah. that uh, I don't think a generation of white people in Bristol, of my generation, so I'm 42 now, uh, of my generation would have done that. Young people have taken it upon themselves to act, black, yeah. black, black and white. Um, it was quite a mix. Yeah, from what I saw it was, and I know many people from my community, my elders and my youngers, who went on the protest, which is great. I wanted to also highlight that in 1999, Bristol had its first major exhibition looking at the slave trade and Bristol's involvement. And I was a gallery assistant at the museum. One of the first jobs I ever had. And it was very, very interesting. It was a hard-hitting exhibition. And being there practically every day, I was amazed about how many people came through the doors. There were so many Bristolians, of probably older than us, who were so upset and angry, saying, we never knew this. We hear the word slavery and we understood to an extent, but we had no idea of the brutality of it and all of the industries that sparked up. So that was significant. People were in tears, basically. As Lord Mayor, I had a visit to the records office mm -hmm. and the archivist there set out a few different bits and pieces for me to look at that she thought I might be interested in. And one that's always stood out to me is the 1671 Journal of Bristolians Taken to Foreign Plantations. That is a document of all the white Bristolians who would have been shipped off over to the Caribbean to build up the wealth of the elite okay and that in many ways is still what we see today so it really irritates me when white Bristolians want to glorify Colston because he was never their hero. The kind of arguments that I hear because I've got foot in the other world through sport and boxing and football and all that is that you know this is ancient history this is 400 years ago why are we banging on about that all the time when actually if you look at the reality the echoes and the systems, financial, economic, and have created the very world in which we live in now. Absolutely, even to the extent of the climate movement we're seeing today, which stemmed from the Industrial Revolution that was fueled by the labour of enslaved people on plantations, as well as the destruction of many Indigenous peoples' land. So yeah. we can see the direct links, and we can also understand that in order for enslavement of Africans to be justified, Yeah. institutions in, including the universities were able to create a wave of academia that basically said that people of African heritage were less than human and almost deserved to be enslaved now those kind of myths have gone on and that we were not civilized it was interesting because we've had although we're going to enter into another load of discussions discussions yeah we want action we had the city conversations a series of conversations exploring race off the back of the Running Me Trust report, which identified Bristol as one of the most racially divided cities in, in the UK. That's correct. So, and I just went to observe and listen, and I could see that there were a couple of older guys at the front who um, were not liberal in their attitudes. But it was great that they were there. 
after the discussion had finished, I went over to one chap and I went over to him. He's probably in his 70s, I'd imagine, from South Bristol. Yeah. And I went up to him and said, good evening, I'm your Lord Mayor of Bristol. And he had a <laughs> massive go at me. He right. said, you're the one yeah. who took down the portrait of Colson. Oh, wow. ranting and raving in my face. Right. I, and I just said, yes, I am. And, I, and there were all these liberals, the echo chamber, they yeah. were surrounding us, you mm-hmm. know, trying to condemn this person. And I said, it's okay. Just back off a minute. Let's have a discussion. He listened to me. I listened to him. And I'd like to think we shifted somehow through that conversation. He certainly gave me respect by the end of it. But what he did say was that, well, we did, and this is something we find, we did Africans a favour. They were running around in mud huts before we got there. That is a fundamental aspect of Afrophobia and that is the biggest lie that's ever been told. When you look into your history, you will discover that ancient African civilizations are the birthplace of civilization. They are the creators of maths, creators of science, creators of many things that we know today. So that kind of naive myth has carried on and still exists in people's heads. Paul Abina, who's part of the hardcore in terms of trying to re-educate people, he's got a project called The Timeline, and it charts the history of Africa and African people. And it would stretch to either side of your wall in your room that you're in now. And when you see that, you see very visually that actually the period of enslavement is is an inch on our history. But we've just focused on that, which also adds to... um, the mental enslavement. And, and the impact it has, and obviously there's been conversations in educate impact that has upon young young black kids as well, that if this yeah. is all you think you are, exactly. then, yeah, yeah, it's very damaging. I, I mean, it's taken, yeah. it's taken 400 years, hasn't it, to actually come out, start yeah. to come out of the other end. But it, that it must feel, and I say this to you as a white person to a black person, that suddenly you've got people that are awakening. I've, I've seen people status this week saying, do you know what? I never really thought about that. Walking, I walk past that statue every day. I never really thought about how that would impact. And genuinely going, yeah, I suppose it would, wouldn't it? And part of me is a bit like, how could you not even understand that? But do you feel that there is, I guess, the symbolicness of the statue is awakened a consciousness in people and an awareness? Does, is it, it, how tough must that be for a black person to walk around knowing and understanding this and, and waiting for people to catch up with you? Yeah. It's very, very frustrating. It's, as I keep saying, we've just been broken records for generations. And now we hope there's a window of opportunity where more people can empathise and also be part of the change we all need to see because mm. it's all of our issue, you know. But yeah, it's been very interesting watching institutions kind of panic and scramble about. <laughs> Do you believe it? Do you believe it, Clea? Or do you think it's PR? Do you believe they understand? Or do you think I it's think just... panic PR and a do-gooder somewhere in the mix. Yeah. I think many of the people leading these institutions will not understand it. Yeah. yeah. But are acting in a kind of... Re- well, it's all very reactionary, isn't it? It's yeah. not that I am against what's happening. I think it is positive. But it's absolutely empty 
if it's not followed through with action and change. And you've got to bring people with you. And I'm very interested in the conversation you said you had with the bloke in South Bristol because, and quite vehemently opposed to othering someone that may have a slightly misinformed opinion um, yeah. because you've got to bring these people with you. But it's as you said, if, if you have a, a distinctive propaganda campaign to stop the truth of history coming out, it's no wonder that lots of lots of those people and I come from that environment that that don't necessarily have access or to to books or to kind of understand all this it's no one it's no wonder that they do you know the stock answer is oh we go being chippy again or what they do is they take on the guilt themselves stop making me feel bad why should I feel guilty it's not me so you almost want to have a conversation that that no one's pointing at you we're pointing at the system yeah but what was great actually about that person and he's quite an influential person in his community in South Bristol, yeah. is that we have stuff in common. Yeah. We're both half Jamaican. Yeah. He, his father came over in the 1800s from Jamaica. Mm-hmm. So it was fascinating for me to get, to get a sense of, wow, so these are one of the early dual heritage people. This is one of the early Jamaicans that was in the city. And he had, he did reference that he might have had a bit of name calling as a youngster, yeah. but he brushed it off and he worked hard and he's achieved in his life and he's very much embedded in his white South Bristol yeah. community. Totally do not have the same view as him. Yeah. I could get on board with, with respecting his resilience. If I reflect on my term as Lord Mayor, I made it part of my agenda for, the, for my year would be outreach into South Bristol. One of the things I did was to make sure it was promoted that, you know, the Lord Mayor will have an open day where people can come round the mansion house. We don't live, none of the Lord Mayors live there anymore, but you can still entertain people there. And I made a point of, it shouldn't just be the usual group of older people who come and have a cup of tea and feel kind of quite good to be in there. Let's get young people in. Let's reach out to people in South Bristol and get them in. And one of the pilots that I did in the Mansion House was School of IE, which is School of Indigenous Excellence. So I've actually been given the push and I'll be starting School of IE for young people online. It's only once a week for children aged eight and above. Yeah. To write speeches, to write articles, but also I'm opening that out to any children of yeah. any background. I'm also committed to, you know, working with my elders, the activists who are um, came before me, mm-hmm. and we're actually going on to form our own council, our own assembly of African Caribbean community interests, because we shouldn't have to depend on a system that has never supported us, yeah. and that we cannot continue to put all of our life chances and all of our eggs in the systemic basket. Yeah, well, let's also be frank. There has been three or four people of African heritage who've been sat around chatting to the merchant venturers for a couple of years, but it wasn't transparent. And if I'm completely honest, when I was Lord Mayor, members of the merchant venturers would say to me, well, you know, we're having these meetings and discussions with X, Y and Z. It would be great if you were part of that. And I said to them, more than happy to come and be part of that and have a discussion and see how we can move forward. I felt as though I was kept out by gatekeepers of our community who do not represent all of us. It was them who kept me out rather than the merchant venturers. And I find that quite embarrassing. And the reason why I'm going to put my weight behind forming this council of our own is because I recognise there needs to be an institution 
self-determined that all these young people now of African heritage, they've, they're galvanizing, they're energized by the Black Lives Matter movement and they need somewhere to go. They need mm -hmm. an avenue. Yeah, people are forming their own meetings, their own groups, but they need something that's sustainable that can always bring them in. Then once we've got that, we will get a consensus that we can take to the merchant venturers. We'll have enough of the important people that we recognize in our own community who represent us to put something on the table. Because the problem is these institutions will think because they're speaking to X, Y, and Z and they happen to be black, that they yeah. represent all of our view and they don't. And the people they've been chatting to, I haven't had one report back of what's been said, what's been actioned, has there been any action? Go on, sorry, yeah. that was Oscar. Do you want to come say hello if you want? It's only because I'm recording. Yeah, go on. Yeah, go on quickly, say hello. hello. Hi. That's Oscar. How old are you, Justin? Um, eight. Eight. All right, so you're old enough to join my school. I'll see you next week. Yeah, go to the school. He's my oldest, yeah. Amazing. Don't Oscar. Yeah, he's the oldest one. Um, so how do, you, how do we, I guess the question as a kind of united city, I guess, get those people out of the way? and allow this new generation to come through, to take their seat, you, you know? know? could be seen hypocritical of me as I sit here as a city councillor. Yeah. But we're not going to see change delivered through the city council anytime soon. They'll you don't believe that, no? Not fast enough. Yeah. And I think it's about self-determination as a community. Yeah. And doing the things that we need to do in terms of our economic powers and all the rest of it. There's so many things we have to do to heal ourselves internally yeah. and then also to be supported externally. But the two things are as important as each other, you know, because for me, what I'm going to be lobbying for now, citywide and wider than that national, is let's also put reparations on the table. Uh, reparation. Just explain what that is. Reparations is to repair the damage that has been done to a distinct group of people. So it's attempting to put right the wrongs. It isn't just about money, but money could be part of it and will be part of it. It's also about, you know, when we consider that African heritage people are overrepresented in the mental health system, this is a result of many things, not least inherited trauma, not least institutional racism, not least ev all of the barriers that have been put in the way for people of African heritage. Can I hit on the trauma thing? Um, yeah. One of the, it, it, it's, it's something that, that I've personally experienced. One of the key things for people healing themselves from trauma is an acceptance that what happened to them is real. And sometimes the, the perpetrator of that takes some degree of responsibility. So yeah. if you think about the collective amnesia, you know, reaction to slave trade, the whole, oh God, you're banging on about that now. So not only have you been, in effect, uh, systematically abused, you're not allowed to grieve because that's mm -hmm. moaning. So there's, a, there's almost like a double impact on that. And I do believe in um, collect, collective, collective trauma. It, you said about that being part of reparations. Do you think that's something that the majority of white institutions really don't understand and actually uh, the, the mental health implications. Is, is this, do you see this as being some kind of connection? I think it's definitely connected to history and contemporary struggles that stem from that period. Yeah. And I think it 
will be difficult for white-led institutions to understand this, but let's hope at least they can empathise with it and yeah. try to understand it, because what we've probably had is worse than that. We've had a denial that it exists and also doesn't matter attitude, you know, yeah. but now it's been driven to the forefront where people have to start listening and have to start acting. And let's also reflect on the fact that many people who are in powerful positions are so because of the inherited wealth they have from their ancestors who enslaved our ancestors. That's how they have intergenerational wealth. Whereas we do not have that yet because we have every time we've tried to build it, not only did we start without anything, but every time we've tried to build, it's been infiltrated and toppled. Yeah, yeah. Or, 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 power, or, power, or power concedes uh, a consensus a bit, but kind of stays in the position, yeah? Which is kind of almost yeah. like my fear at the moment of the Merchant Ventures thing. If that's not managed, they've, they've shifted their position, but they had to. So it's like, how, how can you re-collaborate that relationship so it becomes more, you know, more kind of equal? I, the, the, I guess the, the only challenge to what you're saying probably that will come is where do you start with this stuff particularly economic things where do you start and how do you actually physically um you know um, manifest that well i think again it goes back to being self-determined so the more african heritage people can unite and organize and pull their resources the better so these are all the things we need to tackle internally and then externally as you alluded to earlier it's about an institutional acknowledgement of the harm that has been done to African heritage people and continues to be done. When we think about police brutality, when we think about the schooling system, mental health, all of these factors are all at play. And what we're really calling on as a um, reparations movement, as a first step, is to have an all-party parliamentary commission of inquiry and truth and reparatory justice so every year there's a petition that's delivered to 10 downing street calling for this inquiry so boris johnson has set about another commission of racial inequality <clears throat> that he announced this week mm -hmm. fine other people like the cathedral have taken out the colston window all right merchant venturers have commented saying that it was right for the statue to go. So what? What else are you actually going to do now? Who in these positions of extreme power and wealth are actually going to give that up? Who's going to get a seat up? Yeah. yeah. In. Can't see it happening. It'll have to be forced. Well, no, yeah, that no power doesn't concede without demand. There's never really been a truth and reconciliation um, moment for all this. As a, the, not only has there not been, yeah. the harm continues today. The harm continues today. Yeah, so it's not a 400, it's, a, yeah, exactly. I guess the question then is, how do we accelerate people's awakening to a reality? Because this is, this is not an opinion, this is yeah. a truth. Mm. Um, what, what, what are you going to do? Wait, and, again, just keep waiting, keep waiting and keep waiting. We, I think as African heritage people, we've been the most patient people on the planet, yeah. really. In terms of everything that's happened to us, I think what, what can happen is that allies and everyone who's getting behind the Black Lives Matter movement moment, if they could, for starters, bother to sign the petition of we charge ecocide and genocide against the British government, 
yeah. if they can educate themselves on the reparations movement, which they'll come across words like ma'angamizi, which kind of sums up the historic harm and continual harm that happens to African heritage people. If people can push themselves to go beyond the hashtag, the other things we can do is to drive this through the democratic means that we have. But equally, I think it's going to be very, very important to form this consensus of African heritage people to drive the demands. Yeah, I, I feel that maybe this is the moment to to push uh, more. We'll see, we'll see who's who with either who pushes or who doesn't push or who concedes some power or who doesn't concede some power. And I think that's a nice way to wrap it up. Thank Lovely. You. Great way to end. Just to add to that, since I interviewed Cleo, she submitted a formal motion calling for Bristol Mayor Marvin Rees to write to the Prime Minister asking him to set up the Truth and Reconciliation All-Party Commission. This is pushing for Bristol to be the first city to advocate for reparations to the people of African descent. And she's also currently running to be the Deputy Leader of the Green Party as well. So, watch this space. You can find a link to the petition that Cleo mentioned in the show notes below. If you enjoyed that chat, you cannot afford to miss next week's interview. I talked to Delroy Hibbert, a black guy who attended the All Lives Matter protest here in Bristol. Thanks for listening to Bristol Unpacked. I'm Neil Maggs, and a big thanks to Rosa Eaton, our audio producer, Adam Cantwell-Corn, our executive producer, and Blue Dot for our music. Make sure to subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. And if you want to support what we're doing, join the Bristol Cable along with 2,000 others to create a new kind of media for the city.